Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Good afternoon, everybody. Now, my job primarily today is to keep us to a tight time schedule. So, um, so Jan will be helping me with this. So I'm not going to say anything now. I may say a few words at the end. Um, I'm going to introduce Kate O'Neill who is our first speaker today. Kate is at the, well, was at the University of Oxford. She's finished, Kate, haven't you? Still there. Uh, But you are still there, yes. I was saying you just finished your Daphne Jackson Fellowship, um, sponsored by Glaxo, and you are now continuing at the University of Oxford. So each presentation will be 15 minutes with five minutes of questions, um, which I will, um, I'll keep you all in in check with questions. But um, do please think about questions um, for Kate, 15 minutes. <laughs> okay, um, can I just check my microphone's working? Can everybody hear me? Okay. Um, so, obviously, I'd like to start by thanking the Trust for organising this conference and for giving me the challenging opportunity to present my work to such um, a broad audience as this. Um, as Katie said, I began my fellowship in May 2010, finished a couple of months ago in August. Um, my, I was generously sponsored by GlaxoSmithKline and I carried out the work with the continual support from Dr. Mike Murphy, who's up there in the audience, who's the director of the Childhood Cancer Research Group at the University of Oxford. Um, I'm going to tell you about one of my fellowship projects, which um, involved addressing the causes of childhood cancer. So I'll just begin with some statistics on childhood cancer, just to set the scene for you. Um, I think most of us in the audience are very familiar with the statistic that one in three of us as adults will contract cancer at some point in our life. Now, fortunately for children, the statistic is much lower. It's about one in 500 children that are affected. Um, and to put that into some sort of perspective, that's roughly equivalent to one child per school. Um, and when we look at how the childhood cancers break down, in this pie chart here, you can see that it's predominantly leukemias, and leukemias account for about one third of all cases. This is followed by tumours of the central nervous system and then these other um, rarer categories uh, illustrated here. Now, there's been a lot of success in childhood cancer research in that over the last decades we've seen massive improvement in the diagnosis, um, the detection, diagnosis, treatments, and consequently the survival uh, of um, childhood cancer. And these range from about 50% for neuroblastomas to, to the high 90s for retinoblastoma. However, these very harsh and crude treatments that are given to children unfortunately do go on to leave them with um, long-term health consequences and it still remains the biggest cause of disease-related death in children in the developed world. So we need to do more. And the way that we can do more is actually by trying to understand what causes childhood cancer and unfortunately this is where the limitation is because to date from the majority of cancers we don't know what causes them. Um, it is a very, there are a lot of active areas of research. Um, there are many studies into whether it's linked to genetics. Um, there's evidence that infection is involved in uh, particularly <coughs> leukemia, and that's one of the other projects I was working on. Um, and there are many, many studies into whether it's linked to exposure to, in, to, to different environmental um, components, some of which I've listed here. Now, A very interesting observation, epidemiological observation, is that a lot of childhood cancers actually start very early in life. So in left in blue is total childhood cancers, and you can see that predominantly most cases are diagnosed before the age of five. 
And if we break this down on the right and look at the lymphoid leukemias, you get a very clear peak in incidence between the ages of two and three. And interestingly, for the leukemias, it's actually been shown that you can detect pre-leukemic clones of cells that are on their way to progressing to leukemia present already at birth. So collectively, what this is telling us is that disease can actually initiate already during fetal development and um, progresses very quickly to disease within the first few years of life. And this has prompted a lot of research into early life risk factors. Um, and way back in the early 1970s, in fact, um, there were a couple of interesting studies and in looking at different factors. And one of the, con the only consistent thing that came out of those studies was this intriguing association between risk of leukemia um, associating with um, a high birth weight. And there have been many, many studies into this field since then. And although some controversy does remain, I don't know if you can read that on the purple, sorry. But it's basically well established now that high birth weight is a risk factor for leukemia. The problem is we don't know about the others because they're much rarer diseases. And so the limitation here really has been low case numbers. So the purpose of my project was A, to obtain large numbers of cases um, so that we can investigate these other childhood cancers. And also we wanted to more thoroughly define the risk relationship with leukemias. Um, so for the first part, how did we obtain large numbers of cases? Well, that was um, through my host institution, the Childhood Cancer Research Group. They actually house the National Registry of Childhood Tumours. And this has been running since the early 1960s, and they've been recording all malignancies across the UK since then. And we have information on nearly 92,000 cases, and it's by far the largest of its type worldwide. So in the registry, we have various bits of information that have facilitate different epidemiological studies into childhood cancer. And what's relevant for the study I'm going to tell you about today is that we have birth records for cases and also birth records for controls that have been matched by sex, date and place of birth. And from these records, we've been able to extract the clinically recorded birth weights. To enhance the statistical power of our study, we also teamed up with um, a group in the States, which was led by Dr. Logan Spector at Minnesota. Now, in America, they don't have an equivalent national registry for childhood tumours. So what this group of people did was they focused on five American states. They obtained birth registration and cancer registration records, performed a linkage, and took out birth records um, from cases. And they also randomly selected birth records from controls, which were matched in a similar way to what we did with the UK data. And again, similar um, to with the UK, we um, could obtain clinically recorded birth weights. So in a li little bit more detail, what we did for both data sets was we selected cases that were born and diagnosed across a roughly 30-year period, which is roughly the same between uh, the two data sets. And from this, we extracted information on an unprecedented number of cases. Um, so in total, we're looking at over 50,000 cases of childhood cancer and over 80,000 controls. And considering this is quite a rare disease, this is um, quite an achievement. Um, and then in simplistic terms, we basically compared the birth weights between cases and controls to see whether there was an association with birth weight. And this has allowed us to look at all childhood cancers. Now, there's one very important difference which will come up later between these two data sets, which is that in America, on their birth records, in addition to recording birth weight and other standard information, they also have information about a number of maternal um, 
and, and pregnancy variables, some of which are listed here. Now, some of these um, are actually known or suspected risk factor for childhood cancer. So that means that within the US data, we were able to make adjustment for these factors, and that's something that we couldn't do with the UK data. So we have a nice comparison here. Um, okay, so here are the results. And uh, what we've, I'll just start by going through what we found with the UK data. So the average birth weight is between 3 and 3.49 kilos. So we take that as the reference group. And what we found was that babies born with weights lower than this showed no significantly increased risks of cancer. But babies weighing between 3.5 and 3.99 kilos were at 10% increased risk of cancer. And this is even more pronounced for clinically um, defined high birth weight babies, which is those that are over 4 kilos. They show a 16% increase in risk. And when we looked at this... When we looked at this in more detail, we found that this was actually a linear relationship. So for every 0.5 kilo increase in birth weight, risk is increasing by 6%. And strikingly, when we looked at the USA data, we obtained nearly identical results. And this is important because what it's telling us is that this relationship exists whether or not you take account of those other variables that we could adjust for. So this is telling us that it's an independent risk factor. So this is what we see for total childhood cancers. Um, so when we break it down and look at all the subtypes of childhood cancer, what we find, in fact, is that birth, we see a very similar pattern for the majority of childhood cancers. Now, a couple of interesting observations. One is that we actually see the reverse for hepatic tumours. So what we find is that low birth weight babies are at much higher risk um, rather than high birth weight babies. And the other very important thing that we found is that not all cancers are affected. So we see no effect on retinoblastomas or malignant bone tumours. The other thing, because we have such large numbers of cases, is that we're actually able to break down each childhood cancer into the different diagnostic subgroups. Um, and when we do this, what we find is that not all subtypes of cancer are affected. So I'm just showing you an example here of what we see with the leukemias, um, where we have a 7 to 10% increased risk with increasing birth weight. If we look at the five diagnostic subgroups, we see that risk is only specific to the lymphoid leukemias, which coincidentally is the most common of the leukemias. Um, we're hoping to publish this shortly. Um, but this is very important because what this is telling us is that um, this, at this stage, this is just an observation. We don't know why this association exists. But if we can start to define subtypes that are affected and subtypes that aren't, this may help direct um, future biomedical research. With the leukemias, we were actually able to take this one step further um, through a collaboration with Dr. Anthony Mormon, based in Newcastle, who provided us with cytogenetic information for the lymphoid leukemias. So essentially what we were able to do was look at the lymphoid leukemias according to which type of cytochromosomal abnormality they had. And again, we see the same type of pattern, which is that this risk is not across the board. It's only for specific tumours with specific chromosomal abnormalities. Um, and these results were published earlier this year. Um, right. So I'm just going to summarise and then I'm going to end with one final slide um, discussing potential mechanisms. So the key points I want you to take from this is that this is by far the largest study so far into, this type, in, into the association with birth weight, and it's the first that's been large enough to address all of the different childhood cancers. 
Uh, what we've shown is that birth weight is a risk factor for over half of all childhood cancers. We see strikingly similar results between two distinct populations. And as I alluded to on my earlier slide, it doesn't matter whether we adjust for other risk factors or not, we see very similar results. So this is telling us birth weight is an independent risk factor. And again, importantly, that not all subtypes are affected and that this may um, help to guide future research. And I think this is really where the field is going to go now and it's something that I'm actually trying to get funding for, um, to, for, for continuation of this work. Um, is that we really need to move on now and understand why does high birth weight increase the risk of cancer. So fetal growth is a very complex process. Um, it's orchestrated by a whole plethora of factors, some of which are listed here. We, there's involvement of genetics, there's maternal diet, um, growth factors, estrogens and, and other hormones. And not surprisingly, a lot of these growth regulatory factors have been implicated in adult cancers. So it's a very logical um, guess that somewhere in here we have the culprit. One or more of these are actually responsible for the increased risk in, in babies with um, altered rates of fetal growth. And hopefully what our results will do by defining affected subtypes and, and not affected subtypes is it may help to narrow down what it is that we should be focusing on here in future research. And eventually, um, Far down the line, the ultimate aim is if we could identify something, this would allow us to um, perhaps bring in early screening programs and potentially to intervene to either reduce or prevent um, childhood cancer, which, of course, is the ultimate aim of the research that we're doing. Um, I've recently written a review discussing some of these potential mechanisms um, as well, which is currently in press. Um, I'm just going to skip this slide in the interest of time. Um, so, uh, as you can imagine, for the compilation of this amount of data, there's an awful lot of people to thank. Um, first and foremost, uh, Mike Murphy and other key members of the Childhood Cancer Research Group who've helped with this work. And all of these people across um, Britain and the USA um, who've helped with compiling the data. And, um, of course, uh, acknowledging here all of their funding sources. Um, but first and foremost, the Daphne Jackson Trust for helping me get back to work on behalf of myself and my family. Thank you. And now number two, we've got Jackie here, Dr. Jackie Ferguson, who is... Do you know how to get yours on? I'll have a go. So Jackie is sponsored by... BBSRC, um, we have here today. And Jackie is a fellow at the National Institute for Biological Standards and Control. So over to you, Jackie. Okay. Okay. Um, first of all, good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to thank the organisers for giving me the chance to talk about my project today. Um, one of, one of the technical aims of my fellowship proposal was to refresh and update all my molecular biology skills. And they were skills I learned both here as a PhD student when the biochemistry department was still in Fall West, and also in the biotech industry. Um, so I was really pleased that my fellowship, sponsored by BBSRC, was hosted by the National Institute of Biological Standards and Control. 
This is a government laboratory. We're currently part of the Health Protection Agency, um, based in Hertfordshire. And the remit of NIBS is to ensure the safety and standardisation of biological medicines. These are all the medicines that are very complex molecules, um, such as viral vaccines or complex sugars. And the group I work in is involved in protein hormones, and the hormone I'm going to talk to you about today is called erythropoietin. Um, so erythropoietin, which I'm going to refer to as EPO for the rest of the talk, is produced by the healthy adult kidney in response to low blood oxygen. Um, blood oxygen levels might be low because you're at altitude or you've been exercising or you've lost a lot of blood. The EPO travels through the bloodstream and when it uh, reaches the bone marrow, specific, it binds to specific cells that express the EPO receptor. And they are stimulated first to divide rapidly and those daughter cells then make the changes that commit them to becoming red blood cells. And this increases the oxygen carrying capacity of blood and normalizes blood oxygen levels. Now, even before EPO was fully characterized or purified, the, the potential that it could be a therapeutic had already been postulated, particularly in patients with chronic kidney disease who, do not, who cannot produce enough EPO to maintain their, their blood levels. However, it needed technology to catch up, and that happened in the 1980s when the human EPO gene was cloned and uh, genetically modified into cultured mammalian cells, so enough material could be produced and purified for clinical trials. And the early clinical trials in relieving the anemia associated with chronic kidney disease were so successful that in just three years this was licensed for this clinical use. And it's now a blockbuster biotherapeutic um, with a massive worldwide revenue. And it's used for other indications to relieve the symptoms of anemia caused by other indications such as cancer and chemotherapy and HIV. You've possibly also heard about it from the darker side of EPO usage is its use as a performance-enhancing drug, particularly in endurance sports. So I'm going to talk to you today about a condition associated with um, the use of therapeutic EPO, and that's called antibody-mediated pure red cell aplasia. Uh, this first came to the fore in a period between 1998 and the early 2000s when some researchers in France, led by Nicole Casadival, um, noticed that some of their patients were becoming unresponsive to EPO. And actually, it wasn't just they were not responding to their therapy anymore, they weren't producing any red blood cells at all. And that is because they had, their body had recognized their therapeutic EPO as foreign and had raised an immune response to it, generating anti-EPO antibodies. Um, these prevent, this prevented the EPO from binding to the cells in the bone marrow, so no red blood cells were made. So here's a profile of a typical patient. On the y-axis, you have a measure of hemoglobin, which reflects the red cell content of the, in the blood. Um, you can see the patient is responding very well to the EPO treatment, but, it, um, but here they've lost responsiveness. And the clinician has tried to restart red blood cell development by changing to a different brand of EPO, but actually that hasn't worked either, and this is now critical levels of red blood cells. And so they've had to resort to regular red blood cell trans transfusions. So this, this caused a great amount of research. What called, why did this particular um, brand of EPO? In a lot of the cases, there were 200 worldwide um, during this four-year period. And they were associated with a particular brand of EPO. So there was a lot of 
um, research and hypothesizing as to what had happened. The immune system is designed to respond to, to particles. It's designed to respond to bacteria and viruses. So if a protein, even though it's the human version of the protein, if it's presented to the body in a way perhaps as an aggregate or perhaps um, in association with something from the administration device, the syringe, particularly when it's administered subcutaneously, could have actually um, caused the body to recognise it as foreign and effectively the EPO is acting like a vaccine. So this all happened a long time ago and regulations were tightened such that um, the storage, administration, selection of patients, route of administration, um, all these guidelines were tightened up and the problem went away. So why are we interested in it now? Well, EPO is quite an old drug now and it's off patent, which means anybody in the world can make it. Now, in the UK and Europe, these follow-on products, which we call biosimilars, in order to be licensed, uh, they, the biosimilar manufacturer would have to provide a portfolio of data proving that it was as safe and effective as the original products. But in areas where there's less stringent medical regulation, we are beginning to see reports coming out of patients getting these neutralizing antibodies and the condition PRCA, possibly from getting preparations of, of EPO that aren't good enough. So at NIBS, with a remit to medicine safety, we thought it was actually worth revisiting how you would measure neutralizing antibodies in, patients, in patient samples with a view both to diagnosing and um, ensuring that if we did see PRCA, whether it was due to the presence of antibodies and also to manage the treatment of patients. So detecting anti-EPO antibodies, I want to stress here that we're not just looking for binding, we're looking for antibodies that actually completely knock out the function of EPO. So we need to develop a method whereby we have a cell that we know expresses the EPO receptor, um, we apply EPO to it and we get a measure res response that's reflecting EPO working. We then add our patient samples and the samples we would collect would be human sera. This is blood without the red, white blood cells and clotting factors. So it's the fraction of blood where any antibodies, toxins, hormones would reside. If the patient is normal, you should still see a response. If the patient has neutralizing antibodies to EPO, that response should be diminished or eliminated. So currently, if people want to measure EPO, the function of EPO, they measure EPO's ability to stimulate cells to divide rapidly, so to, to proliferate. Um, this is quite a time-consuming assay, it, and it measures a very late response of EPO binding. Um, it takes two to three days, and you measure the ink, the, whether the cells divide quicker in the presence of EPO or in, for more than the absence. And we measure that by the incorporation of a radioactive component into the growing DNA strands that's going to go into the daughter cells. So the assay is quite time-consuming and radioactive, but the main disadvantage of it is that over such a long period of time, if there's any other factors in the patient's serum that's affecting the cells, they're going to be sat, it's going to be sat with the cells for two to three days, so you're going to get interference from other things in patient samples. There are cell lines available that control for this, but they tend to be in-house in the companies, so they're not widely available. And actually, there's no standardised assay that everybody uses, such that if you get a result like that paper from Thailand, you can't compare that to a paper from another geographical area. 
So following a theme in our laboratory, we wanted to look and see whether we could use gene expression as that measurable response instead of cell proliferation. Um, and we wanted to look at the immediate early genes. Now, when EPO binds to the EPO receptor, as shown here, um, a cascade of protein modification transfers that signal of binding to the nucleus where genes are switched on. And the first genes that switch on are the ones that then orchestrate the rest of the response. So we want to look at these at genes, which we call the immediate early genes, and they come switched on in about two hours. Okay, very briefly, um, the technique that I've been using to measure this, to measure gene expression, you want to measure the product of gene expression, which is the messenger RNA molecule. And to do this, I use a technique called reverse transcription quantitative PCR. In short, it involves copying or amplifying the, the DNA, the, the message, and measuring what you've got at the end of each cycle. So if you've got low levels of expression here, you'll have a low level of starting material, and you'll have to go around this cycle of conditions 30 to 40 times before you see a measurable signal. However, if your gene is highly expressed, you get a high amount of starting material here, and you don't have to copy it so many times before you see the same signal. So again, the number of times around this cycle of molecular photocopying gives you a, a measure of relative gene expression. So the criteria I'm looking for, I'm looking for a gene that's expressed rapidly in response to EPO binding. It's a strong response. I don't want anything hovering around the noise level, background noise. I want it dose responsive, so it's different levels. It goes up when the EPO concentration goes up, and it's got to be specific to EPO. So the first part of my project at NIBS was to actually try and find this gene. There's lots of very elegant ways of finding out and exploring gene expression, and I did the trawling through the literature approach, which, and I came up with six candidate genes. Some, some of the papers I was looking at were going back quite some way, but they seemed to match with what we knew about the signaling pathways from more recent research. So I had six candidate genes, and this particular one, EGR1, which I'm going to talk about today, um, looked quite promising. It's, sorry, it's an early response gene. Um, it binds DNA. It's got a zinc finger protein motif. And its function in the cell is to regulate gene expression. So it's one of these genes that switches on other genes to deliver the response to EPO. And it targets genes involved in rapid cell division and commitment to becoming a red blood cell. I've lost responsiveness. There we go. So going back to those four criteria, I needed my gene to be rapidly expressed. And this time course here shows that the gene was expressed within 60 minutes. So that compares to a two to three day um, response for the cell proliferation assay. I also needed a robust response. And this particular gene was maximally expressed um, up to 60 times, sometimes more depending on, on the cells. Um, that's the fold change over cells that haven't seen EPO, so it's a very strong response as well. And importantly, the magnitude of the resp response, and I have EPO concentration along the bottom and the gene expression along the on the y-axis, the magnitude of the response um, was dose responsive to concentrations of EPO. Um, and what was really useful was that I actually, um, a colleague did some cell, that some of the older assay, the cell proliferation bioassay, and the dose responses matched. So it was, at, it was working in a similar way to the 
to the other assay, so that was quite promising. Now, but the ultimate aim, that's all well and good, but the ultimate aim was to whether that, could, that response could be used or the diminishing of that response could be used to detect these neutralising antibodies in a patient sample. Now, patient samples are quite hard to come by, so I did an awful lot of work optimising the assay in sheep using a sheep serum. Um, and that involved both miniaturising it, so we were now working in a plate format that would be, or could be automated, and it involved getting all the timings and concentrations sorted out. And eventually I had a go, and I'm just going to show you the last two bits of key data where I've actually um, been able to use a patient sample. She hopes. Okay, so to challenge, to challenge the cells with the same amount of EPO, but then to use different concentrations of a patient sample. Now this is a, a patient that has PRCA, and the PRCA is because they have developed an immune response to their therapeutic EPO. Um, and as you can see here, low dilution, so a 1 in 100 dilution of the patient serum completely eliminated that gene expression response to EPO. And, and as you diluted the patient serum, the response returned. Now this patient in the triangles, they have PRCA but it's not related to anti-EPO neutralizing antibodies and that was demonstrated by this patient not actually the serum not inhibiting the response to EPO at all. Now you could say that actually whatever's in this patient serum is, is damaging the cells so I, what I tried to do in the, as a final control, there we go, um, I wanted to see whether I could flood the system by um, by adding so much EPO that all the antibody binding sites were used up and we then saw a measurable response back again. So in this graph here, you have a response to a small amount of EPO of a 50-fold increase in the expression of that gene. The patient serum is completely knocks that response out. However, if I put 50-fold more EPO in the, in the test, so all the, all the antibody is, is mopped up, you then can see the response. So that shows the cells are still alive, they're still happy, they're still working. Okay, my final slide. This work, so this work has been accepted for publication in GYM, um, and hopefully, you know, there is potential for a, a bioassay to assist the management of PRCA. Finally, my acknowledgements. I'd like to thank Chris, my supervisor, and his postdoc Melanie Moore for their technical assistance and support through the course of the project, and Chris and Minu for technical advice. And thank you to the Trust and my sponsors, BBSRC. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for that introduction. Um, I'm going to talk to you today about um, lead levels in pregnancy um, um, connected that have come from um, a very big study that was carried out in Bristol and is still ongoing called the ALSPAC study. Um, my two supervisors are Professor Jean Golding, who's here today, and Professor Alan Emond, and we're based at the Centre for Child and Adolescent Health at the University of Bristol. So I'd like to talk to you, oh we've missed, sorry, one slide missing. 
I'd like to talk to you about, first a little bit, about lead and its effects on the human um, situation. It's common knowledge that lead is a very toxic element and it's widespread in the environment. Um, its acute effects on humans are damage to all major organs and eventually people with acute lead toxicity um, lapse into a coma and die. Um, it can also have chronic effects and these would include loss of memory, um, abdominal pain, um, headaches and um, in children there would be um, a decrease in IQ and possibly poor behaviour. Children are particularly sensitive to lead because of their developing neurological system and because they absorb a greater proportion of lead from, um, from their um, diet and water. So I'd like to take you a step further back into pregnancy. So how does, uh, within, the, within the mother, the lead is stored in bone and it gets there from the blood and it gets into the blood from either gastrointestinal absorption or inhalation of lead from particles and dust in the air. It's stored within the bone, 90% of the lead within the body is stored in bone, where it has a half-life of about 30 years. So how does this lead get into the mother in the first place? It comes from the air, from dust and particles in the air that may contain lead, um, dust that's lying around in the home. It comes from diet. Um, there's particular concern at the moment about um, levels of lead in game birds that are shot with lead pellets. The mother will have lead already in her body that she's inherited from her mother. Um, you can get lead in your body from the occupation that you have or from hobbies. And you can get lead from water. So lots of different sources. So the lead from the mother is freely transferred across the placenta. And it ends up in the unborn baby. So why do we still care about lead? After all, there have been UK bans on lead in petrol in place for quite a long time. It's also been banned from paint, and uh, most of the lead pipes in the water supply have now been removed. Well, these are some of the reasons why we still care. Um, there's been lead working in the UK for about 2,000 years. So over that time, all the lead that we've ever worked with, mined and processed in the UK is still in our environment. There is continued industrial processing of lead in the UK and in lots of other countries. There's lead in some types of aeroplane fuels in small aircraft that are, have piston engines. Um, they still use leaded petrol. Um, every, as I mentioned, every child that is born has some lead that they inherit from their mother. And as I also mentioned, there's concern over lead from some types of food, and that's particularly from game birds, as I mentioned. And we also know that really quite low levels of lead in children can affect their academic performance and their behaviour. And that was work that was carried out in the department that I'm working at within the ASPAC cohort. So the aim of my study was to look at factors that um, could predict the levels of lead within the mothers and to look whether we could modify some of these factors um, so that we could reduce the transfer of lead from the mother to the baby. So this is how the study was carried out. The ASPAC study was a very, is a very large study that was carried out in the Bristol area. It started in 1991 and it recruited about 14,500 pregnant women during that time. Um, a subsample of these pregnant women gave blood that we were able to use for lead analyses. That was nearly uh, just over 4,000 women. 
um, and the um, median age for these women was about 28. They also completed postal questionnaires with information on uh, their environment, their diet and their lifestyle during pregnancy. The bloods were analysed for lead by this mass spectrometry method in America, which is a very sensitive and um, specific method for lead, the best method there is. And we carried out data analysis by SPSS. So these are the results that we found of the blood lead levels in these 4,500 pregnant women. And you can see that there's a slightly skewed distribution. So the mean level is about 3.7 but there's quite a wide range with levels going up to almost 20. So what does that mean? Should we be concerned about these levels? Well, 620 of these women, about 15%, had level, have levels above 5. And levels of 5 are considered to be a level of concern. 15 women had levels over 10, which is uh, really of much more serious concern. So these are levels that, that we do have some worries about. So just to set these results in context with some other studies, these are our results. And these are other studies that I've picked out, published from the year 2000 onwards. And they are studies carried out in countries where there isn't any, or in areas where there was no known particular environmental contamination with lead. So the first thing to note is that our sample is very much larger than any of the other studies that have been published to date, which is a great strength of our study. Um, you'll also notice there's a slight difference in the timing of the blood sample. Our blood samples were taken quite early on in pregnancy, whereas most of the other studies, the blood samples have been taken later in pregnancy. But because there's a U-shaped curve of blood lead levels during pregnancy, this doesn't matter. We can compare the results. Um, so you'll also notice that our results are slightly higher than have been found in other studies in similar countries. And I'll come on to explain some of the reasons why we think that might be in a moment. So just for a UK comparison, a couple of studies. Um, Prima Testa used uh, women of childbearing age, so not pregnant, and found slightly lower levels than us, although at a slightly later date, 1995. And the most recent UK study is one which was carried out in Glasgow on a very small number of people, um, but they had similar results to ours. So just to show you some of the other studies in the UK, these are all the studies in the UK that I could find, so not very many. And you'll see that our study fits in quite neatly with um, a trend for lowering of blood lead levels, and this would fit in with the reduction of lead in petrol and paint and so on. So you see that our, our results are actually the most up-to-date results there are, because Prima Testa is on women of childbearing age rather than pregnant women. So why do we think this is? Well, one possibility is that Bristol has a very high, uh, a very rich history of lead mining and working. Going back to Roman times, um, the Romans used to mine lead in the Mendip Hills on the south of the city. Uh, we've got several sites of um, industrial activity for lead within the city, and these are a couple of them. Um, the one on the um, left is a lead shot tower, which only closed in the 1990s, which is right in the centre of Bristol. And uh, this one is a lead sheet rolling works, which is a restaurant part of the at Bristol site, again in the centre of Bristol. Um, there's also um, been a lead uh, or zinc smelting works on the Avonmouth area of the city, which again only closed in the 1990s. And that site is very close to housing. So then we wanted to look at um, what was causing these high levels in the pregnant women. 
So to begin with, we just looked at some very simple linear associations to get some idea of what we might be dealing with. And we found that um, there was a an association of the lead levels with age, with gestational age, with haemoglobin level, with parity, with smoking. This is not surprising because um, smoke contains lead. With higher alcohol consumption, with coffee consumption, with lower um, iron and calcium intakes, and that's because um, lead competes with iron and calcium for binding sites in the intestine. Having a coal fire, there might be particulates from the fire that contain lead. Not living in Avon all your life. The number of dogs, this might be because the dogs bring in soil which bring in dust into the house. And finally, and surprisingly, because this doesn't fit in with previous studies, um, our linear associations showed that higher social class and education attainment predicted higher lead levels, and this was a surprise. So we needed to go on to explore this um, with, um, multiple, uh, with logistic multiple regression analysis, and this allows us to look at independent factors. So we can adjust for lots of different factors that might contribute to some of these factors and try to untangle them. So this is the maths bit. Um, once we've done this um, complicated analysis, um, we could look at independent effects. And we found that the biggest predictor of blood lead level in these pregnant women was education, which is a bit hard to explain. Um, the, only reason, the only thing we can come up for that is we think that higher educated women may be living in older housing stock, may be doing renovations in their houses, perhaps sanding old paintwork, going up into their attics and disturbing dust. Um, other strong predictors were uh, cigarettes and alcohol intake and coffee. Um, as I mentioned before, cigarettes contain um, lead in the smoke. Alcohol also contains some lead, but it also increases gastrointestinal absorption of lead. Um, coffee has also been documented in other studies as um, increasing lead levels. And there are two effects in play here. One is that coffee does contain some lead, but also that caffeine is known to stimulate bone turnover. And if you stimulate bone turnover, um, you're going to release lead from the bones. And there's also um, a higher turnover of, of bone in pregnancy anyway, so you're increasing the effects. So once we'd untangled all these effects, if I just come back to our linear effects, once we'd untangled all our effects into independent associations, um, some of them disappeared. So we've lost higher social class, we've lost the number of dogs, we've lost not living in Avon, we've lost gestational age, and we lose iron intake. So the ones that are left are our independent predictors of lead levels in these pregnant women. And you'll see that some of them can't be modified, um, but some of them we can modify. And these are things that some women might want to think about during their pregnancies. So in conclusion, our summary is that our, our mean blood levels were slightly higher than we would have expected from similar um, developed countries. We found that the main predictors of our blood le lead levels were alcohol, coffee, and cigarette smoking. And these are factors that can be modified during pregnancy, and this would reduce the transfer of lead to the unborn baby. So if we can modify these factors, it would mean that we could give these children the best possible start that they could have in life. And they re re reinforce public health messages about cigarette smoking and drinking that are already in place. So thank you very much for listening. Um, I'd be happy to answer any questions.
Okay, so I'd now like to um, welcome Dr. Beata Nurnberger. Did you want to speak Do you have a mic? Or is it oh, did you want to have this one? Yeah. 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 Um, Beata is a current Duffy Jackson Fellow in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Edinburgh. And um, Beata is sponsored by the Natural Environment Research Council. So while you're just giving that a bit. <coughs> You're the last person before coffee. Can I just make a quick plea for coffee as quick as possible? Because we're trying to keep ourselves to time. We've made up five minutes, so that's good. Um, but if you can, um, grab your coffee quickly. If need be, bring it back in here um, with you, because we'd like to restart and try and start promptly. So we've got 15 minutes um, for coffee. So, and be able to <laughs> Yes, I'd like very much to thank the Daphne Jackson Trust for inviting me to present this work. Um, all of Oh, I've just switched it off. Sorry. Try this one. Um, all of biological diversity originates from the splitting of evolutionary lineages, which give rise to new taxa, which are then free to explore new morphologies, new ways of life, and can diversify into new ecological niches. Now, in the condensed representation of a phylogeny just like this one, um, it appears that these speciation events are just moments in time, just points in time, when of course these are processes that may take from a short to rather a long time to complete. Um, there are examples on, of particularly spectacular radiations, for example in Lake Malawi we have uh, about 500 new species of cichlid fish that have evolved within the last two million years under particular ecological conditions that have uh, furthered this radiation. Um, speciation does not need to involve morphological diversions, as for example in these lace-wing flies, which are several, uh, as, uh, exist as several species that are indistinguishable to us as observers, but that uh, use very highly species-specific um, courtship calls that leave the lace-wings in question in no doubt as to who is who, and they mate accordingly. Um, speciation may also happen really quite very quickly, as shown in these sunflowers that are um, results of a hybridization event to, um, in the sense that in the first few hybrid generations uh, the genome becomes rearranged in such a way that these, these particular sunflowers can no longer interbreed with the parental taxa that, um, that caused the hybrids in the first place, but they are interfertile amongst themselves and so it's a sort of case of instant speciation. This very diversity of the kinds of modes of speciation that we observe makes it very hard to come up with generalizations about this process. And as I said earlier, it's a process that may take a rather very long time to complete. So I'd like to introduce you to fire-bellied toads, uh, which have a separate history for about five to six million years. This is the yellow-bellied toad, Bombina variegata, and the red-bellied toad, Bombina bombina. And in that period of time, they have adapted to very different kinds of breeding habitats. The Bobina variegata is a specialist in ephemeral uh, habitats where they place the eggs and put the tadpoles under quite some uh, strain to develop quickly uh, to metamorphose before the puddle dries up. Whereas uh, the red-bellied toad reproduces in these more or less permanent ponds and mostly located in lowland terrain. 
Now, this is actually a rather significant ecological divide because the strategies that make a trap pool successful for rapid development tend to be mutually exclusive with those that make tadpoles um, survive better in these environments where there are lots of predators that they need to avoid in order to survive the metamorphosis. So as you can imagine, over five to six million years, these toads have accumulated a whole spectrum of particular adaptations to these two different kinds of, of habitats that are reflected in their morphology and their life history um, and uh, extend to their mating system. But nevertheless, they have uh, interbred and hybridized to this day and presumably uh, over several periods in their evolutionary history. So are they different species? Well, they're clearly not reproductively isolated. So by that definition, they are not. But if, they're, if you consider species as to be recognizably distinct, ecologically different categories, then you may conclude that they are. So I will refer to these as taxa for the time being to circumvent this particularly sticky point. Um, now, as I said, they are not reproductively isolated and we find hybrid zones predictably at the transition between upland and lowland terrain. And I've given you here a rather very stylized uh, version of such a hybrid zone in which individuals are represented by their genomes, which are just merely sticks along which you may imagine genes are arrayed from one end to the other. Um, in the hybrid zone itself, which is often no more than two to seven kilometers um, wide, we find not just F1 hybrids, but also recombinants. So the hybrids are fertile and can breed amongst themselves. And as a consequence, what we also find is recombined genomes that have inherited uh, various amounts of, on various segments of DNA from each of the <coughs> ancestral species. Now we also know that the mean fitness of these hybrid populations is lower than those of the pure types. And that is for two reasons. One is that the recombined genomes of the hybrids contain combinations of genes that do not function quite so well together and therefore cause lower viability. And that's measurable in early tadpole stages. We also know that uh, there is selection on various phenotypic traits that adapt the toads to their particular habitat. And therefore, uh, uh, toads that find themselves in the habitat they are not adapted to have a lower fitness as a consequence. So we might ask, what are the chances that a particular gene arising in this genetic background traverses the hybrid zone and finds itself uh, on the other side of the hybrid zone a few generations later? And if we consider this particular locus here, pardon me, as a selected gene, then from what I said earlier, the chances of that happening are relatively very low because it, there's selection on that gene itself either in the, as a selection against um, the, being in the sort of wrong recombinant genetic background or being in the wrong habitat. But what about um, a neutral locus that has nothing to do with hybrid fitness and that does not contribute to adaptation of these animals to their particular <coughs> habitat? What are the chances of a copy of that gene to uh, move several generations down the line in, across a number of genetic backgrounds into the other gene pool. Now that depends, as it turns out, on the overall strength of selection, but also on the distribution of selective factors across the genome. And when we think about um, 
a definition of speciation in this particular context, we might uh, consider progress towards speciation to be an increasing barrier towards the integration of neutral variants. If that integration stops altogether, we would say these truly are, by any definition you pick, new species because they're now reproductively isolated or no longer exchange genes. But at the time, now, that is not the case because these hybrid zones are semi-permeable barriers to the integration of neutral genes. And so what we need to do to understand the dynamics of the system is to switch the emphasis from the fitness of individuals to the barriers to integrations for genes. And that is a sort of a, a change of perspective that helps in understanding how these ribosomes work. Now, I've worked on this system for quite some time before my career break, and I'd just like to give you a brief overview of what that work has involved. Um, I've been <coughs> associated with the study of the overall genetic structure of these hybrid zones in various different transects in Croatia and Romania and in the Ukraine. And colleagues of mine in Poland have studied two more transects here in great detail. So just based on a handful of markerlosa, we have a quite good understanding about how, for example, different habitat arrangements shape the genetic structure of the hybrid zone and how that affects the permeability of genes uh, across such hybrid zones. I've also focused on uh, phenotypic traits that are likely to be evolved in the adaptation of these toads to the different habitats. These are primarily tadpole traits because the tadpoles are sort of most acutely affected by the different uh, breeding habitats that are being used by the species. Um, and these experiments have involved sort of, from the approach point of view, anything from the sort of high control situation of the laboratory to the realism of natural hybrid populations that are entirely unmanipulated. And Traits that we've looked at are development time, for example, predator avoidance, and uh, temperature tolerance. But clearly, based on what I was saying earlier, what we need is an integration of these different strands of investigation through a genome-wide analysis of selection and introgression, because we need to um, understand not just at the sort of overall uh, the rough level of, of description that our, our few marker also have so far provided us with, but we need to look at introgression and, and selection sort of through the genome as we walk from gene to gene, from chromosome to chromosome, to understand how this hybrid zone functions and where on the path to speciation, if you like, these toads currently are. So what do we know about the Bombina genome? Well, this sort of fuzzy picture pretty much sums up what we do now, which is that they have 12 pairs of chromosomes um, that have a very large genome, which is three times the human genome size. Um, and it has so far proven refractory to detailed genetic analysis, despite considerable effort being spent on this. So when I returned from my career break, or rather began to talk to Mark Blackster, sitting right there in the audience, about possible ways forward, um, he introduced me to the wonders of modern uh, DNA sequencing technology, the so-called next-generation sequencing uh, approaches that have revolutionized the field. And one of its many applications <coughs> is that it allows genetic markers developed in these non-model organisms um, for which previously we had no genetic tools whatsoever. So what we decided to do was not to sequence the whole genome because it is rather very big. Um, but to use a reduced representation of the genome in form of the expressed genes <coughs> and sequence as many of those as possible um, to get a first impression of sequence diversions and 
use the information to develop genetic markers that help us pinpoint particular points in the genome that may be associated with selection and, and with particular traits. So the study design involves samples from three different Bombina lineages and as I said involves the sequencing of the transcriptome, the as complete as possible representation of all expressed genes um, from which we like to extract orthologous gene sets and those are um, genes from each one of these um, taxa that trace their ancestry back to a single locus in the common ancestor sometime back. And once we can align these orthologous gene sets, we can look at uh, genetic variants that are particular to one of these lineages and therefore provide us with a genetic marker that pinpoints that particular location in the genome and we can um, display the inheritance of a given hybrid's genome um, based on these markers. This is something that will take some time and obviously we need to map these new markers in the genome which um, is again something for the future to do but we certainly get a, a first set of presumptive markers on which we can operate and which will be the basis for this. But we can also address some immediate questions which have to do with um, the amount of introgression that might have occurred in the past that we can infer from comparing sequence diversions across the genome between the two hybridizing taxa compared to a non-hybridizing taxon which is Bobina <coughs> orientalis from Korea. And we can ask about the amount of sequence diversions you might find in lineages that are either ecologically very similar or ecologically dissimilar to see whether um, ecological divergence promotes sequence diversions at the level of the transcriptome. How do we actually do this? Um, well, this technology involves uh, fragmenting gene transcripts into smaller pieces which we then um, which are then sequenced and so that we get information on about 100 base pairs on either ends of these fragments. What we end up with is a very large collection of such fragments um, in the millions. But of course we don't know where, which genes these came from. We just have this unordered set of reads that we need to integrate and make sense of. To give you an idea of how many we have, <coughs> I can show you that um, the raw read counts for the four taxa um, are shown on the left hand side here and on the next column are the remaining read counts after stringent quality analysis which are the core data sets that we are now dealing with. And when I said that everything has become e easier in terms of gen developing genetic resources for non-model organisms then what I really should have said is that the challenges have moved from the lab um, to the bioinformatic analyses of these sequence of the sequence information. Because what we now need to do is do a so-called de novo assembly because we have no reference genome for these toads and we need to in integrate these reads into putative gene transcripts which may contain a number of exons and in some cases a given gene may give rise to different forms of uh, transcripts that contain different sets of exons from a single gene locus. We have a rough expectation of how many we expect to find, about 20 to 25,000 genes and they should be just a bit over a kilobase long on average as in the form of, of the transcript. Now I will show you some very preliminary data that we have um, so far obtained. Um, I've carried out um, a first assembly uh, that uses 
the currently best approach to doing to tackling this challenging problem, which is to use a so-called deploying graph, which decomposes the relatively small reads into even smaller fragments, and then rearranges all of them into a connected graph through which you can trace all possible paths that can be inferred as, as gene transcripts. And what we get for Bambina and Varigata um, are seven, roughly 72,000 and 80,000 contexts, that is, continuous <coughs> stretches of DNA that have been assembled from the even shorter reads. Now, if I told you that we expect about 20 to 25,000 genes, then these are um, rather large numbers. So that means, in the first place, that there is some work to be done. Um, they're perhaps not quite as unreasonable <coughs> as they might look to you just now, because um, they, this count would include these different splice isoforms that come from the same gene but include different sets of, of um, exons. And therefore, perhaps we should aim to get this number down to somewhere near 40,000 to get to what we believe to be a good assembly of these sequences. Encouragingly, we have found that about half of these contexts show significant matches to the closest um, uh, uh, model organism that we have, which is Xenobus tropicalis, which has been completely sequenced. And even though those numbers might look low to you, I should tell you that Xenobus and Bobina are 250 million years apart. So that is encouraging base, given that background. And the numbers that I haven't put on the slide because they're too hot off the press is that when you look backwards from the, the Xenopus gene set and ask how many of these genes are represented in, in our assemblies, then the, uh, the percentages are greater than 50% and up to 80%. So that means that at least we have a very broad range of genes captured in the, in the data sets that should give us ample work, uh, ample uh, opportunity to answer all of the questions that I um, outlined um, and, and give us a good representation of markers across the genome. Having said that, I would like to thank my, first of all, my previous collaborators um, that I uh, work with both in Edinburgh and in Munich. Part of that work was funded by the Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft and um, very many thanks go to Mark Blackster who's very generously supported the project and my restart, the restart of my career and really all members of this lab, and particularly Sujay Kumar, Omi Trivedi, and John Davy. Um, the University of Edinburgh and the NERC for past and present support, and the Daphne Jackson Trust for um, amazing help to get me back started. And do I have a minute? You have one minute and then it's questions. Okay, <laughs> just one minute. I'd like to leave you with my dream picture. My dream picture is where I would like to take this. Take this Bombino genome, put points on it that we identify as targets of natural selection, identify where particular traits might be located. If they are located in areas where there is selection, that tells us that that trait has probably something to do with it. Do that for a number of traits and develop uh, the complete sort of causal sequence from ecological divergence to various integration and ultimately speciation. So we're not trying to identify genes, but we're trying to understand the structure of selection in the genome to make model predictions uh, about the progress of speciation in these toads. Thank you. Okay, so um, we're now going to conclude the proceedings this afternoon with three more um, amazing Daphne Jackson fellows. First of which is, Kate, is Rebecca Ward. Sorry. 
my brain. I'm running around too much today. Um, Rebecca Ward is hosted at the University of Cambridge, although she'll explain it's not quite always there, is it? Um, sometimes in other places, and sponsored by the Royal Academy of Engineering. So your 15 minutes in true Bake Off style starts ready, steady, speak. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Thank you. I'm um, Rebecca Ward, as Katie's just said. Um, I'm hosted by um, Cambridge University, but I'm actually based at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew. Um, and I live just south of Kew, so I actually I'm not actually in Cambridge very often. So, um, But I do have to say a big thank you to Cambridge for allowing me to do the fellowship there, and obviously to my supervisor, Dr Chowdhury, who unfortunately can't be with us today. And a big thank you to the Royal Academy of Engineering for funding my fellowship, because it's, uh, I'm about three-quarters of the way through, and it's been an absolutely invaluable experience. It's been amazing. So I'm going to talk to you today about the project, which is all about um, using computer simulation to uh, model... Uh, building energy flows, so looking at heat flow through the buildings on the site at the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew, in particular the greenhouses. I'm going to tell you why we're doing the work um, and how we're doing it, and I'm going to hopefully you'll go away with a bit of an understanding about how our simulation model works. The retrofit studies we're looking at, how to improve the building performance, and I'm going to talk a bit about the potential for microgeneration at Kew, generation of electricity and um, of heat and power, and district um, heat and power networks on site as well. So Kew Gardens, for those of you who haven't been there, this is where I do my sales pitch and I encourage you all to go. It is one of the top um, tourist attractions in London. South London, uh, west, very close to Heathrow Airport, just south of the Thames. So the along the top there, that's where the River Thames runs. So it's on the banks. It's a very, very beautiful garden. Founded in the mid-18th uh, century, and in 2003 it was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site. There are about um, 50 buildings on site, um, ranging from the, um, the great glass houses to um, laboratory facilities, uh, estates offices, um, admin offices, and even, they'd even have a horticultural college and student accommodation. And it's a very famous plant science and conservation centre, so it's, it's a very, very good place to be. The three great glass houses on the site are um, the Temperate House on, over on that side and the Palm House, which were both 19th century structures. And the Temperate House is actually the largest um, remaining Victorian glass house in the world. Palm House I always think of as being the iconic Kew building because um, it's such a beautiful shape and it's the hottest of the three glass houses. Princess of Wales Conservatory on this side, which is the one we've done most of our work on to date, is a much more complex building in that it's split into ten different climate zones, each of which has a different temperature and um, relative humidity set point values. And it, but it was, it's relatively new compared to the other two. It was built in the 1980s and opened in 1987 by Princess Diana. So what are we doing? We're looking at um, using computer simulation to understand how heat flows through the greenhouses. And by using that simulation, we can then go on and look at what happens if you then change the greenhouse structure in some way and identify which retrofit technologies will actually make a difference and will actually reduce um, the, the energy consumption. Why are we doing it? Well, rather more mundanely than all this fantastic stuff that's going on at Kew, all of these buildings have to be heated. They have to use electricity for their power. Because they use electricity and gas, they generate carbon emissions. And the size of their carbon emissions for the site mean that Kew are a mandatory um, participant in the government's carbon reduction commitment scheme, whereby they have to declare how much carbon they emit and they have to buy allowances to cover that, those emissions. 
So for environmental reasons, for reasons of energy costs going up and for carbon uh, emissions reasons, Q are, are very interested in re reducing their um, carbon emissions and reducing their electricity and gas consumption. And the way to tackle that is to tackle the buildings and what, they, what they're doing. So a greenhouse. I should imagine most people here have a rough understanding of what goes on in the greenhouse as the heat flows um, that are there. I'll just talk you through it very briefly. Solar radiation comes in, comes in through the glass and acts to um, the plants absorb it, the soil absorbs it, everything starts to heat up and the plants and soil give off infrared radiation. The glazing is more transparent to solar radiation than it is to infrared so quite a lot of that infrared radiation is trapped and the building starts to heat up. In addition to the radiation balance, you have convective heat flows due to temperature differentials across the building, and you also have heat coming in from a convective heating system, and also you, you lose heat through conduction through the soil. So far, so good. That's actually not that dissimilar from any other building, and you can use pretty standard um, computer models to, to represent this sort of heat flow. What obviously makes a greenhouse very different from any other building is the plants and the interaction of the plants with their environment. Plants have to get their water and their nutrients via transpiration, so they suck up water from the soil and the water then evaporates from the surface of the leaf. And that <coughs> evaporation needs heat, and the plants get that heat from their environment. So the plants are using heat themselves, and this is very, very important when you're trying to understand how the greenhouse works and you're trying to simulate it on a computer. But how much effect does it actually have? If you, that big green circle, it represents, for the Princess of Wales Conservatory, represents the entire 12 months heat load, so the entire amount of heat that's needed to maintain the, the seating set points in the conservatory. If you take all the plants out, you only use 75% of the heat. So the plants themselves are using 25% of the heat that's being pumped into, into the conservatory. Now somebody asked me, not that long ago actually, what was the most surprising thing I'd found during the course of my project, and actually this is it, is exactly how much heat the plants need. So if you're going to simulate this, and you're going to use computer simulation, there's no way you can do it without including that plant interaction. So this is where we need new models to do it. So how are we doing it? Well, there has been work done on modelling greenhouses, on simulations, um, but primarily for um, commercial purposes, so growing tomato crops in your very, very long, uniform um, monocrop um, building. So we've taken a commercial greenhouse model, which was developed in the 1990s at the University of Ghent in Belgium, and we've developed it so that we can apply it to our <coughs> conservatory with lots of different zones, different climate conditions. It's effectively a system of differential equations that model a slice through the greenhouse, so you define your layers, your soil, your plants, your internal layer, your cover, and it, the differential equations describe the heat flow between each of those layers. The transpiration model, again, was developed in the 1990s for tomato plants. Uh, we're obviously not looking at tomato plants here, but um, it seems to be fairly relevant. That includes terms which relate to the solar radiation levels and also the vapour pressure deficit, which is the difference in vapour pressure between the leaf surface and the air, to ensure that the maximum transpiration occurs when the conditions are most favourable, which mainly is during daylight hours. The simulation outputs temperatures for each of the layers in the greenhouse, water vapour content of the inside air, and most importantly from our point of view, from looking at um, retrofit analysis, the heat required to maintain those set point temperatures. 
And this plot here um, shows you a typical winter week uh, in the greenhouse. The, um, the black line at the bottom here is the external temperature, and the red line at the top is the temperature of the internal air. So you can see the daily variation goes up during the day and down at night. Mimics the, the uh, sort of replicating the set point temperatures for the greenhouse. So, having it created our model, I should just say that we, vali we validate our model. It, it, by generating heat flows, by generating the heat load, you can then use that to calculate your um, gas consumption. And we've been able, for the Princess of Wales Conservatory, the beauty of it is that they have metered gas consumption data so that we can compare our predictions using actual weather data for the Q site from the Q weather station. And we can compare our predictions then against the actual metered gas consumption. And we actually get agreement that's good enough to give us confidence that what we're doing is valid and that, that we can then go on and use that model to actually look at the retrofit studies and retrofit analysis. So, how to improve the building performance? Well, in retrofitting, the first thing you do in any building, greenhouse, any building, is you actually repair the structure. Buildings, old buildings weren't designed to be leaky, they weren't designed to be damp, and the only reason they are so is either because they haven't been maintained properly or because conditions have changed, the weather's changed or the conditions surrounding the building have changed. So the first thing we look at is actually repairing it to make it um, as tight as it was when it was first built. And um, loss of air through seals is a big, big area where heat is lost. So seal replacement is the first area to look at. We can also look at improving the glazing, improving the amount of light, um, amount of heat that gets re reflected back into the greenhouse, ideally without restricting the amount of light that's coming into the greenhouse. And nighttime shading is another quite easy thing to implement, um, which has a huge benefit. A lot of the heat is lost at night. Um, you don't need the windows to be clear at night because there's no sunlight coming in, so you can actually shade them, reflect the heat back into the greenhouse, and that's a, a big benefit and relatively, relatively easy to do. We can also start to look at things like bringing in the inlet air underground, making use of that heat that is, is in the ground to heat the inlet air during the winter and actually cool it in the summer so that the air coming in is at a better temperature for the plants already before you then start heating it. And we can look at things like boiler efficiency, replacing the boilers and um, looking at scheduling, so the times at which we turn the heating on and off. Although, in order to do that, you need to work hand-in-hand hand with the horticulturalist, because the last thing you want to do is start killing the plants. So if we do all of that, we put all that into our simulation, these are the sort of results we get. And this graph shows you the percentage reduction in annual gas consumption for the different retrofit technologies um, implemented individually, and then at the bottom we have them combined. So... <coughs> 50% infiltration reduction, top one, gives you just over 10% reduction in annual gas consumption. Low emissivity glazing film applied, again, just under 10%. Nighttime shading, just over 10%. So each of any of those would actually give you about a 10% reduction, which is actually quite significant. Improving the boiler efficiency depends on, obviously, what efficiency you can gain from your new boilers. And heating the inlet air to 8 degrees centigrade, it's not that great um, a reduction in this case, but if you combine that with reducing the infiltration, then you actually get a much, a much more um, efficient effect. If you combine them, and they're not additive because some of them um, affect the others, then the combined effect for these particular retrofits on the Princess of Wales Conservatory overall is about a 22.5% reduction, which is worth having. Of course, what we haven't factored into here 
is the cost. And actually, my next task is to actually look at the costs of all of these different uh, retrofits and figure out which, on a cost-benefit analysis, which one is actually going to be the most appropriate or which combination would be the best. Now, it's important to recognise that these buildings that we're looking at at Kew are all listed buildings. They're all at heritage status. And as soon as you start wanting to make any modifications to a heritage building, you have to get in touch with your local council planning department and through them to, with English Heritage. And their concerns are twofold. Firstly, you cannot change the appearance and character of a historic building. I, mean, I think we'd all agree with that. It's not something we want to do. And just as an example, classic example, beautiful wind, window on the left. Um, it's probably been there for a couple of hundred years. No problems with it. You come along and you replace it with a, um, a UPVC window, which only has a li lifetime of 25 years. It's not aesthetic and it's not sustainable. It's really not um, an option. So it's something we, you know, because couldn't be done at Kew. The other thing um, that is important from an English heritage point of view is that um, they don't want to, you to cause any, it says here, damaging technical conflicts between existing traditional construction and, and changes to improve energy efficiency. What this means is that we can't go along and insulate, say, the steel frames of our glass houses if, by doing so, we increase the likelihood of those frames corroding. So we, you have to be very careful about what technology you use, that it is appropriate appropriate and sustainable for the, for the situation. The heritage also has an effect on what you can do as regards microgeneration on the site. Now, having improved our buildings, having shown that we can do that, if you then want to reduce your carbon emissions still further, your next option is to then start looking at combinations of buildings, whether you can use heat lost in one building to heat a different building, so district networks of heat and power, and also microgeneration, generation of um, power and heat on site and renewable energy. Now, all of these pictures up here are um, potential renewable uh, um, district heat strategies. Um, obviously, not all of them are valid for a site such as Kew. And again, um, big red cross, cross out the wind turbine. There's no way in this world we would be allowed to put a whacking great big wind turbine in the middle of the Kew site. And equally, the PV arrays, the photovoltaic panels, um, even if you could put them at Kew, there's actually so many trees at Kew that there's so much shading that it's actually be very, very difficult to find a location in the site that we could actually put them. So those can be ruled out immediately. The other technologies, though, uh, it's quite interesting. They, have, um, they all have their benefits and their disbenefits. Um, this one here, the biomass boiler, um, you'd think would be perfect for Kew. They can burn green waste, they can create heat from waste. But what you have to take into account at Kew is that it's effectively a closed-loop system at the moment. All of their green waste they compost, and all of their compost they use on site. So if you put a biomass boiler in, you either have to divert some of that um, green waste to go into the boilers, in which case you then have to bring in your compost from elsewhere, or you've got to provide um, the biomass pellets, in which case you've got delivery issues, you've got to store them somewhere. So there are logistical reasons as to why that may or may not be appropriate for the site. Um, a ground source heat pump, again, I mean, when I first went there, I thought, wow, well, I mean, all this space, all this ground, it's the obvious solution, again, and particularly since the greenhouses don't need to be that hot, take the heat out of the ground. It's a um, perfect answer. And uh, so, uh, but I'm reliably informed that as soon as you start wanting to dig at Kew, 
then um, you have to bring in the county ar archaeologist and they have to do a survey and potentially an, archaeolo an archaeological dig on site to check you're not digging, in, digging up anything valuable. Now, just very briefly, because I've run out of time. Um, I'm going to stand up, yep. Just very briefly, just to explain where we're going with this, is that we're then starting to look at the cluster, the clusters uh, of buildings. This Jodrell cluster can, um, includes the Princess of Wales Conservatory and the Jodrell Laboratory. And what we're doing is we're looking using um, technology developed by one of my colleagues at Cambridge um, to develop um, district energy supply analysis and look at things like um, upfront costs versus annual, um, annual cost savings, carbon emissions, and very, very briefly, <laughs> where I have to go yet, I've got six months left to com complete the project. We need to complete the analysis for each of the three main glass houses, look at the cluster analyses that we're doing for the energy supply, integrate those analyses with the whole site strategy. And finally, what I want to do beyond this, beyond my project, is then go on and look at whether you could use a similar approach for analysing traditional buildings, buildings built prior to the 1920s, that are actually designed to breathe um, with the climate. Um, there's a UCL report published a couple of weeks ago that shows that um, building energy simulation doesn't represent these traditional buildings very well, and that's where I want to go. So I am going to finish now. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. I'm sorry I was so quick. But, um, <laughs> okay, I'd now like to introduce you to uh, Dr. David Ayer, who is Cranfield. Um, and is sponsored by the EPSRC. So, well, you'll have to just find your, find your presentation. And obviously now, for those of you who hadn't realised, the Daphne Jackson Trust is an independent returners organisation that helps both men and women. So, um, I'm delighted that we've got five male fellows to date um, who've been awarded fellowships. This is a change that happened in the sort of about 2004, um, I think. Originally, we were an organisation that just helped women, but... Um, we have now changed, and we're running at about 5% um, applications um, from men. So, David, over to you. Thank you. Good afternoon. This afternoon, I would like to talk uh, about introducing uh, nanoparticles into composites, fibre-reinforced composites, for improving their uh, properties. As the title says, solvent-free route to thermosetting nanocomposites. Applications where composites are, are used to, to a great extent, aerospace, marine, automotive and wind energy. So aerospace we've got uh, wing skins and fuselage panels and control surfaces. Marine we've got uh, ships hulls and superstructure. Automotive in the uh, Formula One area a great deal of the car is composite from the, the nose cone to the, the cockpit, and in the, the energy uh, environment, wind turbine blades are predominantly composite, made from composite materials. Fibre-reinforced composite materials comprise of a binder, uh, thermosetting resin generally, and a reinforcing fibre material, whether it be carbon fibre, glass fibre, or aramid. So to produce the fibre-reinforced composite, we take, the, in this case, epoxy resin um, and combine it with the reinforcing fibres, cure the epoxy resin to pr produce your fibre-reinforced composite. The fibres provide the reinforcement, but they're only in two dimensions. 
in, in the plane of the composite material. The epoxy resin holds it together and this is the area that we're seeking to, for improving uh, the properties. And epoxy resins come in many guises um, and the curing process creates cross-link, cross-linking and low cross-link density materials generally uh, have lower service temperatures, high cross-link density, high service temperatures. However, this introduces um, the, the ability or increasing the cross-link density reduces the ability for deformation before you get fracture or bond breaking. So as an example, this is an optical microscopy of a through section of a composite where we can see the, um, the plies held together by the composite. When we impact at this surface, the plies themselves maintain their integrity, but the composite, the, the epoxy holding it together um, fractures, <coughs> creating um, the, the cracks within the, through, through the thickness of the composite material. So it, what we're trying to do is improve the toughness of the uh, epoxy material and thereby reduce this um, propensity for cracking <coughs> under impact damage. In, uh, under impact forces. Rubber toughening has been around for at least the last 40-50 years and it is quite uh, efficient at toughening the low cross-link density epoxy materials. So some work by Levita and et al has shown that cross-link density is um, associated with glass transition, you increase the cross-link density, you increase the glass transition temperature, and the glass transition temperature is a measure of when the material goes from a glassy state, uh, which can support loads, to a rubbery state where it's no longer um, viable for in-service operation. So glass transition temperature equates to uh, service temperature. And if we look at how the fracture toughness changes with cross-link density. It, it reflects what I've said, that at lower cross-link densities, the material has uh, a higher toughness, the toughness drops, but equally, if we introduce rubber and rubber toughen, the lower the cross-link density, the greater the ability to toughen the material. So when you're getting to that, that higher temperature, higher service temperature epoxies, Rubber toughening really isn't an option. We need to look at something else. What I need to tell you is how the rubber toughens the material. Uh, the rubber is generally phase separated within the, the epoxy uh, uh, matrix. And it um, phase separates to micron-sized particles. These micron-sized particles introduce stress intensities within the epoxy and sites for deformation. So when you load the epoxy up, instead of you getting one fracture point which then uh, causes the material to fail, you get an introduction of hundreds of fracture points which allow um, plastic deformation within the epoxy structure 
and this causes massive um, deformation before fracture and that is the toughening. We can't do that with the high cross-linked density materials because they, they just aren't able to be toughened in that manner. So we need to look at a different mechanism. Two mechanisms that uh, are um, understood to be possible here are the crack bridging where we introduce particulate material within the epoxy and as the crack begins to run it'll still create fracture within the epoxy but the, the hard particles pin this joint together you get crack bridging. The, the other mechanism that uh, could be utilised is crack deflection whereas the crack runs it hits a hard particle and it is deflected so that you still get crack propagation within the material but you need to create a much larger fracture surface area and this uh, means that the material itself will absorb more energy before ultimate failure. The SEM uh, photograph here illustrates a thermoplastic toughened epoxy. These are the thermoplastic particles within the epoxy matrix uh, and this is a fracture surface. As the cracks run, we can see that the, uh, the thermoplastic materials have actually ductil—you've uh, had ductility, uh, ductile tearing. They've been supporting in a crack bridging manner until they have failed. Therefore, you have had uh, an energy absorbing mechanism from the thermoplastic particles, but also we've got shear lips here which indicate that the crack in a brittle material this would be a mirror finish the crack would have just run straight across here we're getting the crack uh, changing direction and it's splitting planes so you've got a plane here and a step up plane here so you've got uh, increased sur fracture surface area which is crack indication of crack deflection to demonstrate that thermoplastic toughening uh, is viable, uh, some work by Kim and Brown show that introducing 10% uh, and 30% content of thermoplastic takes our toughness value from 170 joules per square metre up to 431, so a significant increase. So we can do that. Um, but we're interested in trying to harness the potential of nanoparticles to give further improvements in the epoxy uh, material. The nanoparticles that I've investigated are uh, carbon nanotubes and carbon black particles. Carbon nanotubes generally uh, produced, manufactured in large agglomerates. Here we've got a big rope that is comprised of uh, bundles of nanotubes. Here I've teased the uh, carbon nanotubes out by ultrasonicating in a, a solvent and then looking at it under a, a transmission electron microscope and this is uh, an individual carbon nanotube so its diameter is approximately 10 microns and its length the lengths of these nanotubes are generally quoted to be uh, greater than 1 micron and usually heading towards 10 microns so a quite high aspect ratio the problem is how do we get from the, the bundle, the agglomerate, to the individual uh, nanoparticle. And here we've, I've outlined that 
during the process of separating, we have caused some damage to uh, the carbon nanotube. <coughs> Similarly with carbon black particles, uh, they're produced, they also, because of the nature of the high surface area, they like to form tightly packed agglomerates. And to uh, maximise the potential of nanoparticles, we really do need to um, separate these particles down to, if not individual particles, then smaller agglomerates. So the nanoparticles have high surface area to volume ratio, and it is this um, high surface area to volume ratio which we believe could provide a strong interface between our, well, within our epoxy matrix and therefore could lead to this crack pinning. Nanoparticles are expected to have high strength because they've got low number of defects in their crystal structure and it's the defects that uh, reduce the strength of structures. And also an, an added benefit is the carbon nanoparticles are electrical conductors. So in addition to improving toughness, we can also impart some uh, electrical conductivity into our otherwise uh, insulating composite materials. However, we do need to adequately disperse and we need to ensure we've got good interfacial bonding between the epoxy uh, or the, the thermoset and the, um, uh, the, the nanoparticle. The, the dispersion techniques that are generally used are ultrasonic, um, mixing and calendaring. Usually we need to use a solvent for the nanoparticle, uh, the ultrasonic and mixing. Calendaring can be, is basically just squeezing it through rollers at different, which are moving at different <coughs> speeds, so you introduce shear and this can be used for directly introducing um, the nanoparticles. What I did, I used a twin screw extruder where we place the materials in a hopper. It's compounded down the screws in a shearing motion. We've got kneading paddles um, to put the nanoparticles into the thermoplastic resin. Once we've got them in a thermoplastic resin, we then dissolve the thermoplastic resin into the thermosetting resin and transfer the, the nanoparticles in the same uh, procedure and then cure the resin blend. TEM analysis illustrates the morphology that we can obtain. So low 10% polyether sulfone thermoplastic with carbon nanotubes gives uh, phase separated morphology with uh, the particle size, the domain size being about 500 nanometers. And here we see the carbon black particles occur predominantly at the interface. Increasing to 20% polyether sulfone, we change the morphology. The dark areas are the thermoplastic. The thermoplastic now forms the uh, connecting uh, uh, part of the, uh, the blend, and the epoxy has formed the phase separated part of the blend. And here we see again that the particles are predominantly at the interface. Carbon nanotubes we saw something, the uh, phase separation was similar, but the carbon nanotubes were not predominantly at the interface. <laughs> they, they'd remained uh, within the, or they'd moved into the epoxy phase, 
and they were still in quite large agglomerates of up to one micron in size. I used dynamical mechanical analysis to um, determine the effect on the, uh, the modulus of the material or the stiffness of the material. So for the, uh, the epoxy, increasing temperature drops the stiffness, but we've, we've still got adequate stiffness up to around 250 degrees. The polyether sulfone thermoplastic uh, has a, a glass transition temperature of about 240 degrees. When we introduce the thermoplastic, then we see a transition due to the phase separated thermoplastic and a transition due to the epoxy, which is separated uh, also. Okay, do you know what this means? <laughs> <laughs> I do. I'll, tr I'll try and make it quick. Um, this, this isn't important. This is important. <laughs> Fracture toughness. Um, for a, a thermoplastic uh, toughened um, epoxy, we get an increase in fracture toughness. When we introduce the carbon black, we still get an increase, but it's very much reduced because the carbon black particles are actually acting to, as uh, defects and reducing the toughness. Carbon nanotubes, we get even worse at the 10% at the loading of the, uh, thermoplastic, but some recovery at the 20%. Um, the figures, they, they just uh, reinforce the... Uh, let's skip that. The other um, property that I was talking about, electrical conductivity. Carbon nanotubes are much better than carbon black, and I found exactly the same. Carbon black doesn't give us any increase in resistivity, in, uh, decrease in resistivity or increase in conductivity, but I am seeing uh, adequate uh, conductivity in the carbon nanotube loaded thermoplastic toughened epoxies. So my conclusions are, we can melt blend, phase separation uh, does take place, carbon, nanoparti the carbon black particles form at the phase separation interface, carbon nanotubes don't, they end up in the epoxy phase. We do increase toughness and carbon nanotubes do increase the conductivity and we still end up with a tougher material than the pure epoxy. I haven't got time for further work, so I'll leave with the, <laughs> with the acknowledgements. Thank you very much. Okay, our last uh, speaker this afternoon is Dr. Sanka Kokolova, who is at the University of Birmingham in the School of Physics, sponsored by... Oh, sorry. Physics and Astronomy, sponsored by the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Over to you. Thank you very much. So a little bit of a different subject. So to condense or not to condense, that is the question. And as you can see, it would be a rather trivial answer or trivial question because the chap is holding a condensed milk in one hand. So obviously, if I'm talking about milk, the answer is yes. So my talk is not going to be about milk. I don't want to disappoint anybody. But I'll be talking about nuclear matter. So, and the question to condense or not to condense in nuclear matter is still an open question and actually is a quest for a new state of matter. So if nuclear matter can condense, that will be really an absolutely new state of matter, of nuclear matter. So, well, if that was a play, 
as I started so nicely with the play, I'll try to use it a little bit further. And we would have, we'll need some actors, stage, and a storyline. So pretty much, to be or not to be, is actually much closer to to condense or not to condense than most of us will think about it. And this is particularly for a carbon-based life. So we are all organic, so we all have carbon inside, so that is con connected with us as well. Why? Where is the connection? Well, the answer is very simple. The connection is the so-called very famous in nuclear physics Hoyle state. So the Hoyle state, and the picture of Fred Hoyle himself, who in 1953, simply of simple anthropological reasons, predicted the existence of that particular level in carbon-12, which, which consists of three alpha particles. And for those of you who have forgotten what an alpha particle is, this is practically helium-4 nucleus. This is two protons and two neutrons bound together in an alpha particle. So this particular state in carbon-12 exactly has the exact structure it needs to have so that for the very short time after helium burning stars and we have alpha particles, two of them built into a beryllium-8, which is unbound in ground state, which means those two alpha particles live very shortly as a beryllium-8, but the third alpha particle under extreme conditions, which is very high temperature, like in red giant stars, for example, can come to the beryllium-8, to the other two alpha particles, and can build and this level exists, is really in carbon-12. So this nucleus is built and so the nucleosynthesis can continue further to heavier elements. So we can have oxygen, nitrogen, etc. So practically, if that level was not there, having exactly that structure, the nucleosynthesis would have stopped by the alpha particles. So it would have been nothing heavier than that produced. So, yes, our actors, and this is what we have, the nuclei, the alpha particle, and those will be our actors for further, because the alpha particles are not only <coughs> vital, but they're as well, some belong to a special type of particles called bosons, <coughs> which experience, which have very special properties and we'll see about it a little bit further. So I mentioned the bosons, and I wanna tell you how the story begins, but before that, I'll just shortly show you the synopsis because each play has a synopsis as well. So this is how my talk will go. So the story begins in 1924, where a very young Indian physicist, Bose, hence the name bosons as well, has a brilliant idea about describing light as a gas of photons. So he used statistical approach to describe them and sends his paper or his idea to Einstein helping him help for help to assist him with the publication. You wonder why? Well, at that time, 1924, funnily enough, the language for publishing in physics was German. So Bouzet this English-speaking person needed somebody to translate it, needed somebody who understands the theory as well to be able to translate it. Einstein not only immediately translated the paper and got it published, but as well saw the potential and translated and extended the theory to atoms. 
So this is how in 1924 of the theory of Bose-Einstein condensation was already created. Loads of people told us just a theory and it took 71 years before somebody experimentally really produced a Bose-Einstein condensate. So this happens in 1955. Two groups independently from each other, Eric Cornell Wiemer, and Wieman from Colorado University and Wolfgang Ketterle from MIT produced a condensate and this is what you can see as a background picture. What they produced is practically the idea is if we have bosons, they're unique because they don't obey the laws everyday particles obey, which means they can be at the same place at the same time and with the same energy. They can lose their identity. And this is rather bizarre because none of our everyday objects can do that. So only because there's such a special type of particles, they can, if we have a certain number of atoms, in this case, if we have a certain number of bosons, if they close sufficient, if they move sufficiently slowly and they come sufficiently closely, they can together convert to the lowest energy level. And this is what you see. And this is an absolutely new type of matter. And this is why those people got the Nobel Prize in 2001 for the discovery of Bose-Einstein condensate. So what is going to be the analogy in nuclear physics? What are going to be the analogy in nuclear matter? So we, have, we, we need bosons. So we have bosons. We have the alpha particles, which, as I said, told you before, are bosons. So a dilute alpha particle gas will be the closest analog in nuclear matter. As well, I was, as you could see there, this condensation happened in atomic physics under extreme conditions, which was an extremely low temperature. In, this, in our case, in nuclear physics, we don't have the temperature, but we have an analog of temperature, which is the excitation energy of the nucleus. So I made a little cartoon here for you so that it's a bit easier to try to imagine what am I talking about. So this is the nuclear matter as we know it. It's like a bag of protons and neutrons. We have as well a special type or a nucleus. We know the nuclear can cluster into alpha particles, which are preformed. So we have, uh, we have nuclei with the so-called alpha particle structure. So we actually, actually have a very good basis of probab a probability for condensation. So the alpha particles are there. We just have to see what is the, what is the extreme condition they need to condense, or is that possible at all in nuclear matter? So this is how the structure <coughs> it is just a picture of representation, please don't take it really one-to-one, is how this structure could look. It's going to be a nuclei which will be more elongated, a structure which is much more elongated than the normal nuclear matter or even the clustered nuclear matter. So where will be our best candidates? And why do I started talking about the whole state? It's because the whole state is one of the best candidates from theoretical point of view for a condensate. 
So we said we need alpha particles. So the alpha part, if you have a look, this is um, the so-called Ikeda diagram practically represents the energy, the numbers here represent the energy which is necessary to be put into the system to dissociate into alpha particles. So what shows that, what, what gives us that? This means if we have energy, if we put enough energy, we'll be able to dissociate this nuclei, carbon-12 in this case, into alpha particles. And indeed, the whole state, which consists of three alpha particles, is at 7.654 MeV, just above the so-called particle threshold. This is a threshold for the system dissociating beryllium and alpha, and beryllium goes simultaneously afterwards, so two alpha particles, so practically we have as a result, we, we register the decay of three alpha particles. So it is not only carbon, but I'll be talking only about carbon-12, only because, because I don't have so much time and because it's the best candidate and as well is very essential. So we have the best candidates, but we need some solid theory. And this is where I normally lose half of the audience and half of the audience gets really very excited. So there is a very solid theory which has been developed mainly by Japanese and German uh, theoreticians in the last decade, and hence the beautiful name to Saki Shukuryuchi Ropke wave function. <laughs> it's really difficult to say that. But it's again, it's the wave function which describes the condensate in a case of three alpha particles. So it is a rather simple condensate. So, although I, I really appreciate the beauty of the form formula, the first time I presented this formula to lay audience, which in this case was my family, I got this reaction. <laughs> so, I thought I probably should think about something a little bit better. And yes, we can make it a little bit easier, or we can make it a little bit user more user-friendly. And this is still having all the physics and all the theory inside, but pretty much what is interesting from here for you or for me as an experimentalist is we have the alpha particles, and the nucleons of each alpha particles are confined in a narrow potential. This is the, with the little parameter b. And all three alpha particles are confined again. They can't go anywhere. They're trapped in an oscillator-looking potential with a big parameter b. <coughs> so this is the method used, or the main function used to do all the predictions. I mean, it is a really beautiful theory behind this. And they've gone really beyond my imagination as an experimentalist. So, yes, I'm saying again, I'm an experimentalist and I keep repeating it. So, for me, the most important thing will be, okay, we have the beautiful theory, we have everything. How are we going to be able experimentally to get some hints or to see something about that structure? So, because of the definition of the condensate, how it's going to be, there are a couple of experimental signatures you can see when you when you perform experiments. So one of, the, one of the first things which immediately come to mind, the most logical thing, is that we'll see a higher alpha particle multiplicities when we consider the decay of a compound nucleus than in the case of a normal matter. 
Another, another signature as well is to extract the decay probabilities for all decay paths and compare between normal nuclear matter as we know it and, con and condensed matter, or what will be the case in condensed matter. As well, here gets a little bit more complicated, and I'm just going to leave you to read, or I'll just mention it, but I'm not going to go into details, is where we can observe the total kinetic energy distribution of the emitted particles, and there we can again see the effect of the elongated structure of the condensate lowering the Coulomb barrier. So, yeah, what I've done, I performed a, end of April the, one of the experiments in my project, and that was done in the beautiful Australian National University in Canberra. To go there was an experience on its own. And so what we had is we had a silicon 28 beam, a carbon target in the vacuum chamber, and we practically shot the silicon beam on the target and saw what is happening. So if you were the beam, you would have seen that, or this part of our setup, because we used eight silicon strip sensitive detectors, sorry, eight silicon strip sensitive detectors to register the charged particles. Yeah, and this is just for people which are like me and really like cables. This is the electronic setup. <laughs> um, that was probably my greatest experience, was to put everything from scratch and build it into something which looks beautiful and it works beautifully as well. So, there it is, the proof. So what you can see is that's our array, eight position-sensitive silicon strip detectors, which record the charged particles which are produced in the nuclear reactions. So what you can see here is, when I reconstruct the data, spending a couple of months doing that, after this you can see that beautiful picture which has angle, and this is real angle, like in the chamber, and you can see the intensity of the particles. So from here, we use, yes, we use a lot of beautiful physics from, from first principles, reconstructing the alpha particles we register in the detector is going to the original state of which they have decayed. <laughs> and you can see that's a beryllium-made ground state, and this is reconstructed from me, from our current data, from my analysis, carbon-12, 0-2-plus whole state. Higher multiplicity events, but it's going to take me quite a lot of work more, and I have almost six months and a minute <laughs> of talk time, to extract the precise multiplicity of the alpha particles, which will be already a hint in the right direction. So to condense or not to condense, that is still the question. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not going to be able to give you an exact answer when my fellowship finishes, but I hope that we're going to be one step further in the right direction of obtaining the answer. It's very vital, and this is a beautiful red giant star where the production or the exact structure of carbon-12 is really essential for the production of the carbon in the triple alpha cycle. Thank you very much. Not really. That is a very good question. Thank you for the question. Because I was expecting there's going to be a lot of people trying that. But unfortunately, even when I presented this in front of our nuclear community in the UK, there were not so many people doing it. Practically in the UK at the moment is only our group in Birmingham doing this. 
It's only me working on this, mainly with uh, Professor Martin Freya. But internationally, we have a bit more support. So it is rather, rather, really very new and cut-edge, cut really, uh, stuff, this. And at the moment, I'm putting together a collaboration with Italian, Japanese, and Croatian colleagues for a bigger funding, hopefully, to be able to go direction this. It is, yes, you would expect there are loads of people, that, that, but there is pretty much nobody. We have a bit of German, and I know because I started in Germany, and this was where I stopped my research for my career. So Brain. you see how much of your Nobel Prize did you give to Daphne <laughs> 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 we, we can discuss on that. No. I think that it, it will be great. I haven't been thinking so far in that direction, to be honest. I'm more sort of like considering the next five years of funding or something like that. But yes, it will be great if we succeed, yeah. Okay. Any, any more questions? <coughs> nope. Okay. Sunny, thank you very much. That's it. That's very much. Well, thank you very much, everybody, for coming. And we'll see you next year.